And we saw that there was a statistical link between a lower value of maximum force output in the horizontal direction and a higher risk of injury. But this was not from the value of the preseason. Most of the studies doing, you know, prospective injury cohort studies just measure one thing preseason and nothing during the season. And they make statistical relationships. That is a bit, you know, when you work with players, you know that the player's status in July in European football is absolutely not the same as in March or April, the year after, okay? So our study shows that pre-season maximum force output is not related to the risk, but when you measure that maximum force output throughout the season, the last measurement is related to the risk of injury after that measuring period. That was JB Marin, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast. Starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout. And I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature in our connection to it, and to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs, such as Shilijit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Welcome to another show. Thanks for being here today. Not all sprint forces, or not all sprint times, I should say, are created equally. When it comes to sprinting from point A to point B, two athletes could run the exact same time. So let's say they run the exact same 30-meter time, but the strategies and the biomechanics that those athletes use to cover that distance could be very different. And those differences are important because uh, how an athlete sprints and how they can redirect forces, especially in the horizontal vector, makes a big impact on how fast their top end speed can possibly be. It makes a difference in their injury resiliency. And being able to measure and monitor these things is really valuable, especially when sprinting itself, uh, and not to mention sprinting in context of sport with all the different situations and decisions and manifestations of sprinting in the realm of sport, Having a simple variable or a simple set of variables by which to assess an athlete uh, and then to dictate uh, things like workloads or training interventions can be really helpful in the grand scheme of keeping athletes healthy and helping them to reach their highest performance. When it comes to sprint profiling and sprint forces, someone who I always love talking to and learning from is researcher J.B. Marin. J.B. Marin has been a two-time guest on this podcast in the past. He's currently a full professor and head of sports science and the physical education department at the University of St. Etienne. JB has been involved in sports science research for over 15 years, has published over 50 peer-reviewed journals since 2004, and is always getting into 
uh, not just research, but applied sprint research that has that track coach hat to it. The data that his work brings forth is highly applicable and learning that force velocity profile has ramifications for so many situations in training athletes. On the show today, JB has in the past talked about force velocity profiling. On this show specifically, he'll talk about it as a mechanism to assess athletes throughout the course of a season and how athletes who can exhibit the proper force production strategy are going to be at less risk of injury. He'll also talk about some recent sprint research highlighting the hips and the calves. He'll go into a chat on new research on the hamstrings. We'll talk a little bit about hill training versus sleds, the foot, training the foot, and a whole lot more. It's always fun to sit down with someone as well-versed in all things sprinting as J.B. Rin. And this podcast was full of great takeaways and just good information for any coach or athlete out there. That all said, let's get on to episode 286. JB, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you here. And it's been a while since we last talked. I, I think, yeah, you had said about 2018. And I'm sure there's been a lot of really cool new studies and things that you've been working on uh, in that time that's gone past. What are, what's some new work uh, that's come out uh, on sprinting that you're particularly excited about that's, that you've been working on in the last few years? Yeah, thanks, uh, Joel, for, uh, for having me again. Uh, super cool to, to chat again. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, academically speaking and sprint research speaking quite a long time ago <laughs> because there's been some, some really cool stuff uh, out recently. I would say uh, um, experimental stuff because uh, I'm mostly interested in experimental science and, uh, and uh, you know, pe people testing things and, uh, and, uh, and um, testing hypotheses. So I would say that the most, the most exciting stuff that's been out in the last two years well, maybe yes, two years um, was related to sprint, let's say uh, kinematics or technique or pattern. First, there's been a series of studies um, from uh, Australia by uh, Marcus Pandy and his colleagues that um, clearly show the importance of uh, hip extensor muscles and, uh, and calf muscles in generating the power that's necessary to accelerate and sprint fast. But this is great because there's been two very clear studies. And the first one by Anthony Shashi is the first author. Sorry for um, <laughs> mistakenly pronouncing his name, but I, I guess it's something like that. They, showed, they, they did for the first time a um, um, simulation study based on force plate measurements and EMG and uh, motion capture inputs during real accelerations. So this, this was to me a groundbreaking study because before that, it was either uh, treadmill acceleration studies, such as the one we did, or uh, constant speed runs. So it was increasing speeds, but at constant speeds. You see what I mean? And there, was never, um, there has never been an acceleration study. So this was the first one. And they clearly show that the negative and propulsive power that's generated at the joints um, is predominantly at the hip joints and at the ankle joint. I, I would say, to summarize the study, 75% of the energy that's generated to run is generated at the hip and calf uh, plantar flexion uh, uh, level. So this is, this is very interesting because it's, it's supporting my bias and, and, the, and the functional bi uh, model I have that uh, sprint acceleration is based on generating force and transmitting it to the ground. 
And this is really, really uh, 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 focused on the hip extensors and ankle. And then they confirmed that study in another one that is um, how muscles accelerate the body or something. The title is really cool. And this has been also uh, completed by uh, Ken Clark's studies around the ability to whip from the hip and to have very, very powerful hip um, angular motion to eventually generate some propulsive force onto the ground. And Ken has published two major papers in the last two years on that. So I would say that that has really, really uh, focused the importance on the hip as a, as a power generator and on the ankle foot complex as a power, let's say, generator and transmitter because that's that's where uh, force is transmitted to the ground. That's interesting, and it fits with a few things that I've been thinking about lately. One was, well, and I'd like to follow up if you know the details, but it was the recent shows I've been doing with Randy Huntington. He was talking about soleus or calf strength and Subing Shan, and, and I had always thought to a degree um, that acceleration or early acceleration, like the first few steps, um, that that the knee joint was a lot more important there and that maybe the foot and the calf wasn't quite as important in the first few steps. But then once you really got moving uh, and, and more into upright velocity, that's when those forces on the feet and calf got higher. However, um, what Randy's talk got me thinking about, well, the soleus is a more of a bent knee calf muscle, so it's more active when the leg is bent, which is a little bit more of a thing in acceleration. You have more, you're dealing with more bent leg angles. And I mean, of course, the foot does have to be, um, you don't want to be mashing your heel into the ground in acceleration either. And so I'm with these studies, especially this one that um, w was done, um, like not like a treadmill study, but on, um, you, had, you had just described it, was this saying that the, the hip and the calf, like even in early steps, like even before an athlete's really moving, um, the, the hip and the calf are still more important, like the quads. Mm -hmm. Because I think that a lot of times in early Excel, we would think about the knee joint more. So I'm just curious yeah, how, so, how that fits. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, what they did is that they they um, they quantified this during early, mid, and late acceleration, which means very high, intermediate, and low acceleration. Because as you know, the the acceler the amount, the magnitude of the acceleration is very high at the beginning and goes lower and lower and lower. And um, in these three different parts, um, the relative proportion of, of energy generated and dissipated at the three main joints is about the same. So it means there is not a very, very different story in the very first steps compared to the medium acceleration compared to the high speed slash low acceleration. So in this, it's, it's, it's not a simulation study. It's simulation based on actual measurements so i think it's it's a very highly trustable study cool so really uh, and i'll these studies i'll have to put these in the show notes if i can remember to ask you uh, to send me them after yeah, we're yeah. done talking i'd yeah. love to put them in there and it, that's yeah. interesting because that does go a little bit different direction than something i had thought on a level however i i guess that now are these um uh, with the start to are these uh, with the feet? Is this out of a two point stance, uh, three point like uh, a blocks type start? Uh, was there a specific starting position that they used or or compared? Uh, that's a good question. I need to go back to the papers because, uh, but I guess they were uh, mostly um, uh, sprint familiar people. So mm -hmm. 
I guess it's a two point start, but uh, I need to check that. Yeah. Uh, but th there has been some some very detailed studies on on starting block space. But I must admit that um, it, these studies are interesting, but they really um, focus on something that is used by very 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 few athletes. Uh, if you take all sports, where the body is accelerating. The starting block phase is very specific to, you know, um, uh, track people. So it's not that I'm not interested in that, but um, it's, it's a very different um, uh, movement. It's a very specific movement compared to, you know, the entire accelerating athletes in every sport. Yeah, I guess with that in mind, we really could. Uh, I've already felt this way, but I think we could even say so even more is that athletes with bigger quad muscles and quad development in a way it's that's more of your decelerator, be it you know, changing directions rapidly or a vertical jump or something like that, uh, like a soccer or football. You know, uh, anyone who has to change directions, that would be that that anti gravity. Mm -hmm. But if you're just going one way, then yeah. it's just constant acceleration, and you don't need the quads to to reverse anything. And we yeah. talked too about mm -hmm. early um, knee extension too being a detrimental thing for linear speed if the knee extends too early and the hip can't do its job. So. That does, now that you say that, does fit even with step one in that perspective. Yeah, sure. I mean, the entire, um, it's, it's a very big, it's a it's big danger of uh, over-interpreting research. Mm. Um, the, this research is definitely about linear forward uh, acceleration. So it means that uh, deceleration capacity or COD is a totally different story. And, uh, and, and I agree with you. It's a, it's a different position. It's a different, you know, a type of muscle coordination and everything. So um, that, that's that's another story, yes. Yeah. The, I guess the thing, the, the practical thing that I think of that I'm not sure how this, I'm sure you could research this for sure, but it makes me think about um, like how much, like how much, not to get, I don't want to get too technical here, but like how much is the shin dropping forward each step? Uh, and then how well can the athlete wait to extend the knee? and let the glute do its job and and almost looking at that as um like like are you using your glutes and feet well <laughs> because since acceleration mm -hmm. step one if step one is just as important with the glutes and the ankles respectively as step nine and ten then you should be able to really use those glutes and calves well for every step versus i guess a maybe a technique or coaching people into ways that might be a little bit more quad oriented uh, that's just where my mind goes with it i, I mean it'd be interesting to um, try to draw those connections out, but the, um, yeah. yeah, sorry, go ahead. And, yeah. And, and, and we have to keep in mind that's very, very, very important that, uh, sprinting is, uh, we're talking about 50 milliseconds to 120 milliseconds windows of action. So, so at some point, uh, it's, it's very difficult to coach, you know, appropriate coordination and all that stuff because everything is happening so fast. So. That's really a very, very um, a tricky thing um, because when you read a paper and when you read some graphs, you know, the graphs are here uh, uh, in front of your eyes for seconds and seconds and seconds. But the movement we're talking about is this fast. So uh, we have to be very, very um, uh, humble uh, in, in trying to coach from uh, studies. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And as you said, you know, trying to take research too far, I think, into one's coaching can be can be problematic yeah. it, it's it's more i think that it's a good way to make sure just just to see that you're on the right track in many ways um and to confirm and to, to work with versus 
just taking a study and then, <laughs> all right, I'm going to do all oh, yeah. my coaching out of this one study. So I yeah, spe especially that. if you take one study, because maybe next week there's going to be another one contradicting and then next week and then, and then you never do anything. So uh, you have to be able to very, very carefully read studies and, uh, and apply them to your, uh, to your own environment. Yes. So talking about something as complicated as sprinting, I think probably the only way to make it more complicated is to try to study it in light of sport, team sport play. <laughs> and, uh, so that's, that's what I wanted to ask you was your thoughts or any new thoughts coming out uh, in terms of sprint technique or force velocity profiling and then linking that to what we're seeing in team sports, maybe an injury predisposition. Um, is there yeah. anything been coming out in that whole world of, of com pure, com very complex world uh, that's, that's new and interesting? Yeah. So uh, first on the methods, um, well, the, the the force velocity profiling, uh, the macroscopic profile has been used in, in many different sports by many different research teams. <clears throat> There's been a couple of um, uh, reliability studies, uh, in, for example, in ice hockey acceleration and all that stuff. So we know it's very, very non-sport specific because the method requires a linear acceleration that, that almost never occur in any sport. But we know that team sport is so chaotic that it's the least, you know, worst way to assess uh, the athlete's acceleration capability because you will never access that during their uh, uh, game environment just because it's absolutely not reproducible. And so we've developed a method to try and estimate the acceleration speed relationship uh, uh, based on in-situ GPS data. So we are now in the process of developing this and confirming this. But yes, I would say that um, you have to know what you're assessing and you're assessing a sprint acceleration capability that is not sport specific. But what do you want? You want nothing, zero information at all, or you want some information that may be useful at some point to further develop and, and monitor the players. So for example, if, if a player has a major injury and they come back and you have absolutely no data on their you know, sprinting pattern or the sprint mechanics, uh, you're left with just guessing things. Okay. If you have some data, at least you can uh, target something and you can plan with a bit more information. So we don't say that the profile is the, you know, the, the, the alpha and omega of everything, but we just say that it's a pretty cool information when you want and when you can use it. So this is very, this is very important. Yeah, so that being more like uh, specific to like the force velocity ideas um, and that as measured via GPS versus um, like, like the idea on running technique and injury relationships. Yeah, so uh, the thing that we've published uh, this year was a cohort study. So basically we, we knew that post hamstring injury and post rehabilitation, most of the players tested had an impaired uh, maximum force output, external force output in sprinting. Whereas when they are post rehabilitation, their maximum speed is uh, back to normal. So this, is, this was clear in many different studies. And so we said, maybe there is a um, um, prospective link between the maximum force capability that we know now uh, is, is uh, very, very uh, much influenced by the hamstrings and the risk of injury. The hypothesis was 
if my maximum force in acceleration is impaired, means lower than my peers or lower than myself a few weeks or, or months ago, maybe it's related to my muscle function that is a bit uh, different and, and, and impaired. And so we prospectively monitored players, um, uh, football players mainly, but also rugby players throughout the season. And we saw that there was a statistical link between a lower value of maximum force output in the horizontal direction and a higher risk of injury. But this was not from the value of the preseason. Most of the studies doing, you know, prospective injury cohort studies just measure one thing preseason and nothing during the season. And they make statistical relationships. That is a bit, you know, when you work with players, you know that the player's status in July in European football is absolutely not the same as in March or April, the year after. Okay, so our study shows that pre-season maximum force output is not related to the risk, but when you measure that maximum force output throughout the season, the last measurement is related to the risk of injury after that measuring period. So it means if my F0, my maximum force output in sprinting is lower, my risk of injury in the weeks coming after the test is greater. This is the this is the main conclusion of the study. So it means, yes, there is a piece of the puzzle that's related to the sprint kinetics in the prevention puzzle. And so that's one more red flag or information. But to play that piece of the puzzle and to use that red flag, you need to measure it regularly, not only once in preseason. In my opinion, the preseason measurements most of the time when it's muscle related, are just here to satisfy the staff, the coaches, the managers. We did something for the players. But in terms of, you know, quality of the data, actionability of the data for the entire season as a, as a player's information, it's, it's pretty, pretty uh, uh, low level of information. You need to monitor them regularly because there are so many changes throughout the season. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. Simplyfaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource, not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In simplyfaster.com's online store, you can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the free lap timing system, bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines such as the K-Box, and also Kaiser training units, which Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units such as the 1080 sprint, force plates, and much more. You can check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Let's get back to the show. That's really interesting because that, in some ways, the like the technique equation, like what, where should these join angles be, right? Like that, that becomes very complicated. And I think there's a lot of predispositions with that. And um, track and field athletes run differently than team sport athletes and different types yeah. of team sport athletes run differently than each other. So it seems like it can simplify the whole thing, 
by just being able to say, well, let's just take this down to a more common variable in how we're working with the ground. And I quickly, the, so the, how do I want to say this? So when the maximal horizontal force output went down, then they were more predisposed to injury in the short term after that finding. My, what I was curious about is if that is also related to their just their speed. So if I was measuring a 30 meter dash um, and they were slower than they typically were, mm -hmm. would that be the same thing? Or could it could they be the same speed and but yet have worse um, ground uh, horizontal force outputs, which would I guess also indicate that their technique had gotten worse because they weren't able to drop their yeah. shin as well. So here you have a big problem because if you just time a 30 meter dash, all you know is the 30 meter time. I mean, this is pretty obvious, right? But think about it. If my 30 meter time is 10% lower than my previous, you know, two weeks, two months ago, you don't know where that lower time comes from. You don't know if it's at the very beginning that I'm lacking maximum force output. You don't know if it's in the intermediate part of my... So you could do five meters or one meter splits, or you could do one millimeter splits. This is exactly the idea of the force velocity spectrum. So if you just time the players, yes, if they have an issue in maximum force output, you will see a lower time. But you only know that it's a, an issue with the force output when you actually calculate the force output, because otherwise... You just know that the 30 meter time is lower and you don't know where it comes from. You see what I mean? So maybe the player has a totally correct force output, but it's the maximum speed phase of the spectrum that is problematic. And again, if you don't calculate that, there's no way you can know that. And uh, the final thing is that some people say, well, don't bother calculating the FV profile because the split times is enough information. First, as you know, to get some five meter split times, you need to be rich. You need to be a rich coach mm -hmm. because it's super expensive. Okay. And the second thing is that um, the, the computation study that Pierre Samozino has just published a few weeks ago shows that you can have people with the same uh, 20, 25 meter split, but different profiles at the beginning of the spectrum or at the end of the spectrum. So again, just timing will give you just a time information not the why is 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 this time uh, better or worse yeah it makes me think about i think this came out of um, sparta science and, and what phil wagner was doing i want to say that this is where this uh, thought came from but that athletes could come in and jump on a vertical jump um they're mm -hmm. same like the same height like a, a few mm -hmm. consecutive sessions but they would notice that um, athletes who were maybe a little more fatigued would use a different strategy. They would revert to a different strategy in jumping to get pretty much the same height as previous sessions. And so I would imagine that, yes, we're, you could, this is now we're taking that idea on a bilateral vertical jump to something yeah. that to sprinting and now piecing that out and saying, okay, well, maybe you ran, I don't know, maybe you were only ran two one hundredths slower than last week or two weeks ago but the way you did it was very different you know you weren't creating good angles against the ground and you had to compensate a different way yeah sure there's so many a 30 meter time a four second maximum sprint for for many people that just a four second effort but there's so much happening you know there's so many steps so many 
opportunities for the body to produce force in different angles and so on. That's, that's a long story. That's a long story. And uh, the, the best way to visualize it is to have some data of players with the same 30 meter or 40 yard dash time and very, very uh, sometimes opposed uh, profiles or, or capabilities. So are they exactly the same in terms of performance? Yes. Are they exactly the same in terms of the underlying mechanics? Absolutely not. Should they be trained the same? In my opinion, for that reason, no. Because if you give them the same program, it means that for you, um, these totally different mechanics are associated with the same uh, margins of improvement and the same uh, recipe for, for improvement. And I, I disagree with that. Yeah. Um, so if someone did have, I, I do want to actually mention about how to measure this quickly, because I know the MySprint app would be the, if you don't have the thousands of dollars to get all these timing gates <laughs> or, or tens of thousands of dollars, if you're doing every five meters over 30, um, yeah. you, you can just do that. I think we've talked about this on past episodes. You could just do that on the phone app. You just lay it out and it, it has that system all set up. Yeah. And, um, the funny thing is that <clears throat> it's always the same you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you use this app in the wrong way and you, you don't respect every setting and, and the athletes are not totally, you know, mm -hmm. reproducible in the way they sprint and so on, you will get variable data. But if you use it correctly and uh, if the athletes are um, correctly sprinting, uh, the, I, I totally trust the data. The thing is that in, in, in some Oki studies, they used the Samozino method that's been, you know, validated against gold standard force plates, but they did not use the MySprint app. They used markers that were set according to the, to the, to the mathematics to get the five meter splits measured. And they filmed the sprint with a GoPro. So hmm. there is no MySprint involved. They used the GoPro 200 frames per second. That's super accurate. They used the spreadsheet that we've generated and they calculated the, the, the FV profile. So it means it's not about my sprint or not. It's just about finding a way to correctly film the sprint in slow motion and use the free spreadsheets that, that, that we've generated. So, um, if everything is done correctly, uh, there's no reason uh, for, um, unreliable data. Got it. And the alternative is the alternative is something you will never be able to, to purchase or, or to get around. So we have to be okay with that. Sure. Um, so if I, let's just say I had, because this may, might help me to visualize what's happening too. Uh, like how would I, I thought I would have is how do I visualize someone who has a poor horizontal force max? And, and quickly too, does that horizontal force max, is that, the, is that similar or how is that different than, and I, I should know this, <laughs> but I feel bad. I should be like, I, I'm a student who should know this, but like the, the <laughs> H zero, I guess you would call it or H man, like how is that different than ratio force? Like I know the ratio force is your ability yeah. to, you know, have good shin angles and to optimally be directing horizontal forces. Mm -hmm. uh, just quickly, how is those, how are those the same or different? It's yeah, it's, it's very simple. One is related to the magnitude of this horizontal component, anterior posterior component of the ground reaction force. The other one is just related to the angle, regardless of the mm -hmm. magnitude. So in order to have a good horizontal component of that push, you have two options. One is to have a very high force magnitude. So it means 
a very high ground reaction force vector that your system generates. Well, well you push and the track is, is uh, responding to that. The other one is to have a very good orientation of that force. Mm -hmm. And of course, the best of both words is having both a great magnitude of, of force output and a good ratio of force. But if you take two athletes with the same magnitude of ground reaction force per unit of, kilo of body mass or whatever, the best horizontal component and so the best acceleration in the horizontal direction will be the most horizontally oriented uh, vector. This is, you know, one of the reviewers of our uh, Journal of Biomechanics paper on that. So it was last year in 2019. So Journal of Biomechanics is, a, is the highest journal in our field. One of the reviewers told us, why are you doing this? And why are you validating against false plates these equations? Because that's just a simple application of Newton's laws of motion. So you don't need to do a study for the, for, to prove that it's, it's there, it's, it's mathematical. And so we said, we agree with you, but believe us in the field of sports science, there are some basics that you need to, you know, prove even if they're obvious. So that was the, the long story short. Got it. So back to the study that, that, that clarifies things for me. And so back to the study then that you said short-term predisposes you to a higher injury risk is what that was maximal, just raw pure horizontal forces. So via either via generated by yeah. shin angle, you know, optimizing your shin angle or just being very muscularly powerful and being able to compensate around. Yeah. Got or it. both. Or both. Yes. Uh, ideally, the both. Thing is, ideally yeah. I can do both. Yeah. The, the thing is that you're right. The thing is that in this prospective cohort study, we did not go, we could because we have the data, but we did not go into um, what was lacking in the low F0 injured athletes. Was it because they had a low magnitude of force overall, or was it because they had a low, you know, uh, uh, orientation capability? Um, we could go back to the data, but uh, we, we just watched the macroscopic output. Uh, that is maximum force. Because one thing that's very important is that the last studies a posteriori connected very clearly this F0 macroscopic to the hamstring and glutes you know, muscle function uh, capability. So this is important to, to keep in mind. It was just not a random, you know, hypothesis. Let's put all the variables and see what happens. No, no, no. It was what is the variable that is related to the hamstrings function? Okay, horizontal force output. Let's mm -hmm. test this one. Yeah, that's, I, I'm interested now in how those athletes who, I mean, if you had a lowered horizontal force, I, how, I mean, the only way to run faster, I guess, is to have more of a vertical orientation to your uh, your movement. But I feel like could that get you as fast? Like it had to be. I mean, I, I my view of it is just someone trying to push more at the quads or something, or having an yeah. earlier knee extension and uh, something yeah. like that. It'd be interesting to go into the details of that study and yeah. see it and see the times and and then look at the sprint yeah. techniques too that change. I would be really fascinated with that. Yeah, sure. Because but the the big issue is that if you start from zero and you are more quad dominant, and so you push more vertically, uh, you will not go uh, to a very high top speed yeah. because it means you will lack that forward acceleration. It's very important. To, vertical force output is very important at top speed, but uh, how to get there is an, entire, uh, differently, uh, is an entirely different story. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, that's why I'd, I'd be fascinated to see more more of that and almost like 
you know, if you if you can't produce the horizontal force, where does it really kill your split times and how are you compensating? And I, I say this because I think about my mind is always thinking about and, and like you said, you can't try to take too much out of one study. And that's where I like I wish, you know, I, I would be really curious for the more and more data with different anecdotes. But the way I look at it from a very general perspective is perhaps um, if someone's I would imagine probably the biggest risk to getting hurt is overtraining and overstress just from maybe a general perspective you've you've trained too much you can't recover and when we overtrain the the phasic muscles of the body get a little weaker like the glutes will get a little weaker and the tonic muscles will get a little tighter and yeah. i guess it's it's being very generalist i'm being an extreme generalist here but my thought would be if your glutes were becoming a little bit weaker because you were overstressed and going into that response then that's how it could show up in your sprint mechanics is you're not able to really leverage that horizontal force via yeah. either just using your glutes or dropping your shins well because i do feel like the glutes have a role in getting those shins to drop and, and accelerate correctly and so but then it's like well well what's the intervention if it's not you can't make someone sleep more or, or do better recovery protocols then would for example doing a, a sled workout maybe once a week or two if someone is in that realm, yeah. that that be the intervention saying, hey, you aren't creating good shin angles. Let's get that horizontal force just a little fix up and let's throw some heavy sleds in the middle of the season. And the coach looks at you like you're crazy, but it's like, no, this is why we're doing this. So that's just my the way my mind goes. I just I think it's um, yeah. it's interesting to think about how they got there and then what interventions could be utilized. Yeah, and uh, it makes total sense because in the studies where we got people fatigued by repeating acceleration sprints, the most uh, uh altered factor was the ratio of force hmm. not the magnitude of force in some all blacks very high level people they were the the magnitude of force output wasn't changed after 20 sprints because after 10 sprints of 40 meters because they're just machines mm -hmm. but they were applying that force with less horizontally projected horizontally oriented uh, 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 capability and this is why their f0 decreased so and you might be right. Um, the thing is that uh, training and overtraining, as you say, is a, is a balance between your constraint and your capacity. So if, you, if there is an imbalance and you think as a coach that maybe we should improve the capacity to face that constraint, so put more glute work, uh, heavy sled work, whatever, maybe you're going the wrong way because maybe the idea is to reduce the strain, reduce the constraint by better programming the work because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, performance is trying to get the athletes as fatigued as possible so they adapt, but not overtrain. And this is, you know, this is why good coaches are good coaches because they know how to, to manage that. But sometimes the idea of improving capacity uh, is, the, is the first solution, but the idea of reducing constraint could be also a good solution. I've seen some uh, professional rugby players coming back from a few days or weeks off because of an injury and sprinting as they never uh, uh, sprinted before, just because they were chronically overloaded. Mm -hmm. And so if you say, okay, they don't adapt enough, let's, let's, let's load them again, let's work more on this, more on that, maybe the idea is let's work less on this or on that. So that, that's very, very tricky. Should we push the more button or should we push the less button? Yeah, I, and I, I say the I joke about the heavy sled in the middle of 
the season from a perspective of it's always obviously we want to be able to optimize our volumes i was just thinking well what if the the physical preparation coach has no control over that you know and and they're just like well maybe let's just do one or two of these sled sprints just to try to re-engage you know it's like i yeah. I can't lower your volumes. I wish I could. And, um, but of course, certainly. And I think about too, it makes me think about, well, if you were doing, um, if I was like just conditioning a team for it with a lot of acceleration work, maybe it would make more sense then to yeah. throw a heavy sled sprint in every three or four runs, maybe just to make sure that they don't get too far away from a, a, a good way to create angles and forces there. Uh, I agree with that. And, uh, <clears throat> sometimes, I think there is a philosophical bias there. As a coach, as a physical prep, you're paid and you're expected to make them work, not to make them rest. Because if you, if you say today my, my training content is rest, work on that, relax, uh, you will feel like you're not doing your job because your training content is to put something on the table, not to remove something from the table. But sometimes... The best solution is to, uh, you know, have more chronical exposure, as you just said, but also sometimes to deload and to consider, you know, having the players uh, a few days of rest or this is very, very tricky. Um, I come from cycling and I saw most of the young cyclists that were competing around me. They were very, very good in the early season. And then they never competed well in the national championships and so on because they were all overtrained because their coaches themselves, the philosophy of I need two days off without cycling was like, uh, I'm not a cyclist anymore. Whereas in fact, it was the solution. Blood work is a common analysis in the regime of elite athletes. It quantifies many dimensions and metrics of an athlete's physiology and helps one to see windows of potential performance improvement. Today's episode is also sponsored by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. The company uses a blood test and patented algorithm to analyze your body's physiological markers, providing you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you. Inside Tracker then offers science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. In using Inside Tracker myself, it was truly fascinating to see the many metrics of my own physiology, looking at things like hormone levels, inflammation, blood oxygen-related metrics, and much more. If you are interested in an Inside Tracker analysis, for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. And to get that discount, head to insidetracker.com/justflysports. Yeah, yeah, like that. Um, I think Dan Paff has called it. Um, acute relieving syndrome from I remember that in the yeah. video uh, lecture series of his a long time ago and that was like a that was a mind-blown moment for me in my early 20s I was like whoa if you if you don't do anything the day before you compete that's like that could mess you up and or like I guess you could look at it from a series of weeks it's uh it reminds me a little bit even too of um, in swimming when I worked with swimming they would swimmers are uh, for whatever reason, maybe it's just because the sport is so mentally demanding that there's always a ton of overtraining and then a huge taper. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I mean, it's easy to say, well, there would be better ways than just a massive chunk of overtraining and a huge taper. But I do think swimming yeah. has some specific nuances that other sports do not that um, should mm -hmm. be respected. But regardless, I always found it interesting that once 
I mean, and that whole thing is its own world a little bit in that in that taper because it's so much bigger than most other sports. And a lot of these swimmers would get the the taper blues because which the taper blues is like you you're overtraining basically, and then you're doing way less, like fifty percent less training, and your body is freaking out, and you have no like it just it's like the ultimate acute relieving syndrome. Uh, and then, yeah, yeah. but then people would go on and rest a little bit longer and then get over it, which I always found was interesting too. I mean, I, I, I think some really interesting research could be had studying like physiological markers of swimmers as they go through a massive workload reduction <laughs> and all that business. So I, I hear but, you. But it's, like Im- it's important to remember that before a workload reduction, there has to be a workload and overload. <laughs> and yeah, most of, of the time, uh, the overload is not there at all. So. This is very, very contact dependent. Yeah, yeah. Swimming is definitely a sport that there will be overload. <laughs> I know in, in talking with the Omega Wave folk and stuff like yeah. that, that's uh, that's definitely a pretty massive thing. So I know it's, yeah, in team sports, it's different. I think a lot of times it's the strength coaches and sports scientists hoping their team does a little bit less so that they, you know, don't get overtrained and things. Um, with, yeah. with uh, okay, so on the sled topic i was just thinking about this as well because this could be a practical idea um along the lines of hey we're going to be doing um a fair amount of of repeat sprint work today um if if that's being done uh, although i also think of it too I, I like joel reinhardt who's been on this podcast talks about minimizing noise in the sense of the more we can get out of the team sport practice the better for the sake of conditioning and i, I think that's that's very powerful but i was thinking about a situation where um, like let's say there's a hill next to the playing field and yeah. and if I want to hopefully like do some work that can preserve good horizontal force, good shin angles, um, how does a hill compare to a heavy sleds? Has there ever been any research on that or do you have any thoughts on that, how uh, a hill work could potentially supplant a heavy sled type stimulus? Yeah, so uh, th- there has been some theoretical description of um, accelerated run versus uh, uh, slope hill run uh, with my mentor, uh, Professor Di Prampero, a few few years ago, something like 10 years ago. And there has been a very cool study uh, we've collaborated on with uh, Jace Delaney. Uh, Jace is, not, is now at the Celtics. When, uh, when he was at Oregon, uh, they used to have some uh, hill sprints and they built a hill so they could have different slopes. Okay, um, I won't make mistakes, but the steepest slope was in fact not that steep. I mean, you, you can find much steeper. And so they compared um, uphill sprinting in these different slopes to, I think the steepest was something around 18 or 20%, but I need to double check. Okay. But what I remember is that um, compared to sled sprinting, to resisted sprinting, of course, you can get some similar uh stimulus mechanically speaking because of the velocity the only common denominator between the two situations two contexts is speed so for example very uh, a typical example if i run my maximum speed is five meters per second with a given sled so for me that would be something like i don't know a 30 kilograms or a 40 kilogram sled if you find a slope on which my maximum speed is that five meters per second you found my equivalent slope or my equivalent sled, as you, as you prefer. So this is very um, tricky because, as you know, sled friction depends on the surface and on the weather and so on, but say that you have the same. So Jace compared the speed of the, of the athletes on these slopes 
to the speed with resisted slants. And the overall uh, idea is that the slopes that they used were uh, very, very much on the velocity side of the curve, mm. which means that if you want to mimic the stimulus by matching the velocity, the maximum velocity under load or slope, you will have to find very, very steep slopes to match with the mechanical stimulus of very heavy sleds. You see what I mean? Yeah. So I would say that um, uphill sprinting is very good as a stimulus. It's equivalent to some resistance plan, uh, uh, sprints, but up to a certain point and up to a certain load. So, And the second thing is that, practically speaking, it, it's way easier to load a sled with bars uh, with discs than to find uh, the, let's say that my slope for this kind of stimulus is 40% or 30%. If you don't have that around, uh, you cannot use slope. So this is, this is a bit tricky because I think that uphill sprinting can be the same tool in the training toolbox, but it's way less practical to find, except if you have an engineer that will build you with a, you know, a 20 meter track that you can, you can adjust in terms of angle, incline, but that's very unlikely. Yeah, it seems like the, the steepness of the hill needed to slow you down as much as that optimal heavy sled would be so steep that yeah. it wouldn't even be sprinting yeah. too. And, and gravity would be so different. It, like even the way that I was thinking about this as you were talking too, but the way that you kind of tumble forward in a flat ground yeah. surface with a sled is different than fundamentally a hill on some level yeah. too. So there is some things that that seem like yeah. yeah the heavy sleds are definitely the way to go if you have it and have enough of them or for whatever you're doing uh, but this is why this is why i think uphill sprinting is interesting if you're in a phase or if you're in a context or if you're in a program you know a phase where you want to address light resisted sprinting you know close to close to maximum speed so the end of a cycle the end of the season whatever then you can use uphill instead of uh, of a sled yeah, or almost you could go, yeah, you could go in a way from, you could move from heavy sleds into some hill work too, or that could be like, yeah, the more velocity-oriented phase of it all versus yeah. the sled. Interesting. Um, so when it comes to uh, hamstrings, I know I've, um, I've had a few podcasts on hamstring stuff uh, the last, over the last, uh, I would say several dozen episodes or maybe last 50 episodes. What, um, is there any new interesting hamstring research that has been coming out that you've seen or, or i guess maybe even the, the sled and the uh the horizontal force would certainly probably be one because i imagine hamstrings are such a common muscle but yeah. any uh anything else that you might want to speak on on the level of hamstrings yeah so unfortunately due to partly due to covid uh there has been very very few experimental studies on hamstrings in the recent uh well in the in the two last years um, and so there's been a lot of, you know, review of literature addressing the always the same stuff. But I've seen very recently um, a very interesting study that is taking the focus back to the hamstring injury mechanism, what, when it happens. And this study was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. So it's a, it's a big medical journal. And they analyzed slow motion videos of injuries occurring in football, in soccer, European football. And so one of their main conclusions is that, so, you know, there is stretch related injuries, but there is sprint related injuries. And their main conclusion is that most of the sprint related injuries occur at high speed. This is something that we knew, but also occur 
in pretty linear movements. Hmm. So this is very important because it means if you want to focus the injury management process on the injury mechanism, the cause of the problem, the, the movement that led to the problem, you need this kind of studies because you need this kind of information. And the information is, wow, um, it happens very fast, most of the time in pretty linear motion. So this is interesting because it means um, it supports the fact that we focus on, on improving linear acceleration you know, uh, uh, technique so that we can reduce the constraint, the strain on the muscles by, by adopting a posture with less strain, all things equal. Yeah, that's that's interesting with the hamstrings and the the linear and high speed. I guess it's, I mean, it's almost as if it's just a velocity per second thing. Like once you get up to a certain velo- meters per second, the only way to go probably is straight for the most part. And uh, it, so, would it be pretty fair to say, I guess, on a level that it's more of a, um, although I mean, some people, I, I I guess you think about hamstring pulls. I mean, there's occasionally would happen coming out of the blocks and track of my experience, but not. Typically, <laughs> like you think no, about someone that, slowing down, not that often. Yeah, no, not typically. that often. Yeah, so interesting. Uh, so I guess that would, yeah, that would. I, I've seen. Um, I remember if it was before or after the last time we chatted, it was a, a, a strength coach or a physical prep coach from Spain uh, working with the football clubs, uh, one high-profile football club there, and he would have athletes um, doing like different agility, just random agility drills, just to get them tired on one end of the field. And then they would sprint over um, low mini hurdles or wickets to the other side, like top yeah. end. And then they'd go to the other side and do some drills to get them. Yeah, And so it's almost as if that was very specific to that, probably the number mm-hmm. one mechanism of injury and trying to maintain yeah. some good running mechanics under fatigue at high velocity. Yeah, I like it. Exposure. Exposure yeah. to the problem. So it, it's not a problem anymore. Yeah. Avoidance. Avoidance is the, avoidance is the worst uh, thing you can do with the athletes. because. On game day, no athlete will avoid that ball, that action, that sprint. So <laughs> avoiding it in training is just nonsense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, without question. I I only have um, two questions for you left here, JB. Actually, and I, I kind of came up with one on the fly uh, just because this would be interesting to ask you. I, I almost 100% positive we talked about this uh, last time and I could scroll down. I think we, we did talk about it, but... Uh, anything you mentioned that the hips, uh, the hips and the feet being the, the crucial elements in not only top end but also early speed. Um, have you have any or had any recent thoughts? I know you've posted training videos on some exercises you like for the foot. Mm-hmm. Have you had any other thoughts on trainability of the feet, uh, things to do or the lower leg? Uh, any any new thoughts yeah. there on training the foot and lower leg to to really fit with what we're seeing in sprinting and acceleration? So uh, I have no new ID on that. I think it's like any type of muscle system, it's trainable. Otherwise, uh, it's, it's, you know, why is it there? But, uh, but we are now uh, generating some, some research projects to test that. So the first thing that we, so we have two PhD students working on it. And the first thing that we will publish soon is, uh, is we've designed an ergometer to specifically test the foot muscles, the intrinsic foot muscles force. That hasn't been done very clearly in the literature. It's all functional tests, more or less, or uh, ergometers that have some, some, some limitations. So first, we are going to design something to measure the strength. And then we are going to start um, a preliminary study on trainability. So we are going to 
you know, strengthen these muscles and see if the force is, is improving. This is the hypothesis because, you know, based on thousands of studies on other muscles <laughs> in the human <laughs> body, I would be very surprised that you can strengthen basically any muscle in the, in the, in the body except the intrinsic foot muscles. And then based on that, we're going to run a training study. Okay. So, uh, we're going to have two, two different populations. One is going to be athletes, uh, from different sports. And another one will be on elderly, uh, you know, very old people. So, and we're going to see that. So for now it's, I know research is slow. My idea hasn't changed and uh, maybe research will prove me wrong, but, uh, uh, practice personal experience, uh, shows that you can get some results, uh, by strengthening the feet. So, but it is not academic evidence, of course. So we're going to, we're going to tackle that very soon. Yeah. I, I'm really interested for when that comes out. My, I've been doing some extremely informal research, uh, with my kids and their foot strength. My kids are, I wouldn't even call it research, but my kids are three and five and they're like, children are yeah. so elastic. Like they don't like everything yeah. is just bounce for them. And like when my, my daughter will do hopscotch and she's five and she'll jump on one leg and stuff. And when she does, like, she doesn't have a lot of, um, like there's very little, uh, bending of the ankle, like her ankle, whatever you want to call it, yeah. very stiff. So, stiff. I'll, so I'll like, or if the kids are jumping on me, like their feet, our bare feet are like little, I mean, it's, I can feel how hard they're, they're plantar flexing <laughs> into, yeah. I, it's pretty, um, amazing how much plantar flexion strength they have. Obviously they don't do any specific strength for it, but I'll, I'll, sometimes I would like, I would tell them to push their toes against my thumb to see how strong like their toes are just to get an idea. Like yeah. where is all this stiffness coming from? Because obviously they're not like, yeah. I mean, I'd be, I'd be super crazy if I had them doing calf raises or something, you know, like, is it, yeah. what about the intrinsic strength of these children? Uh, you know, where are they so strong that maybe, a an older athlete isn't. And so I've been doing my informal research. If I come up with a way to measure it. Yeah, no, but that's, that's very good. That's important. It's exactly the same. When I do a very specific strengthening session with people who almost never did it, they have crazy dumps. They have crazy, you know, um, uh, muscle pain in the days after. What does that mean? It means their muscles are uh, starting a very, very well-known physiological adaptation process that will eventually result in, in an improved function that that's how every muscle works so uh, we'll see if it's if it are different yeah oh for sure it's it's a different the the just the architecture of the feet i think and and the complexity draws some different um i mean yeah, research is research yeah. but the way we go about it might be a little less straightforward or a little less straightforward than just you know testing max quad strength on a isometric machine or something there's oh yeah definitely there's a little bit more to it uh, so last, just last question I'll leave you with, um, is important variables in setting up like sprint research design in in looking at, um, in, in being able to extrapolate things well out of sprint research. Yeah. What are some things that you, you're really looking for to make sure it's a good solid study? That's very, very important. Um, I would say, uh, two things, the level of familiarity with sprinting of the athletes you test, because sometimes you have some sprint studies with people who almost never uh, sprint. That's the first thing. And the second thing I think is when I read a sprint study, uh, most of the time, the study, I, I, I don't care about the study because there is no control group. So, or there is a control group that is doing nothing. This is very important. So if you compare whatever intervention to 
doing nothing, 98% of the time, your intervention will be positive. Because, you know, when, when, you, when you deal with uh, non-elite people and you compare something to nothing, of course, something will work. So I advise, if possible, to have, I know it's, it's difficult because it will increase the number of subjects needed and all that stuff, but if you want to compare something to uh, sprinting, compare it to a sprint program, not to, you know, nothing or doing as usual. So this is something that we did, for example, in a, in a study with Jordan Meniguccia on the effect of uh, doing Nordic hamstrings. We had a Nordic group. We had a nothing group. So it means they were just playing football as usual. And we had a sprint group. And in that case, you can conclude that one is better than the other. But if you just compare um, sprinting or whatever type of intervention to nothing, and I did it in some of my studies. So this, this criticism applies to, to my studies as well. Um, uh, you will end up with a, a result that, uh, yes, this is better than nothing. And you don't want that. You want this is better than uh, this other intervention or et cetera, et cetera. So there's other ways to do that. You can have also a very, very long uh, preliminary control period of measurements with the same athletes that will be then tested for intervention. It's not obligatory to have a control group. It's also okay to have a control period in the same athletes, but you need to be very careful with this in your design. Yeah. I know the, the subjects and who was the other, who was the control and what were the non-subjects doing? Yeah. Especially when just looking at just training group, one training group to another one, one season to another where you did a type yeah. of intervention. And especially like with Nordic hamstrings too, I think there's a lot of people who yeah. talk either good or bad about Nordic hamstring exercises. And I feel like the only way, like you have to have a good research design if you're going to really get into that. Yeah. You take a group of football, young football players, you do Nordics, they improve sprinting. But if you did squats, if you did deadlifts, if you did jumps, very likely they would have improved anyway. And by very likely the, uh, a very similar magnitude. So it's very difficult to, com to conclude of the specific effect of something. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the good, the good design is just so important with that and being able to actually bring some practical applications out of the world as well. Uh, Oh, and, and Joel, sorry, one last thing. Oh, sure. If you're, if you're not a sprint coach or a very familiar sprint uh, person, ask someone from the field to help you design your study because that's going to be <laughs> a major help in, in, in not doing uh, nonsense. Yeah, I could totally see that. I definitely would agree with that one. Uh, it's, it's interesting, it, just other studies that I've seen that I... I went through a lot more research back in the day when I was in, working in the biomechanics lab doing my master's thesis and stuff. And some of the studies you would see on like, man, like do these researchers like no training, you know, like, like they knew yeah. what they were doing, but they did, did they know training design? And so yeah, I yeah. definitely agree with that one. Um, I've read the recent, I've read the study recently. Their objective was to improve maximum force in, in the legs. And the training content was more than 10 reps with loads that were lighter than 80% of 1RM. How in the world are you going to improve maximum strength with this kind of design? Except if it's, you know, very untrained people. This is, this is very uh, questioning, the design, the program. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that happen. I'm trying to think about 
the actual study. It was a squat study, and it was something to the tune where it was like quarter squats versus half versus deep squats. But something happened in the study where basically the, it was relative to your one at max, and people got overtrained. Like, doing quarter squats, I think it was something where the people doing quarter squats ended up having to do like 500 or 600 pounds. And and then the, the the full squat people, it was still their max, but it was way less, like maybe two hundred or three hundred, right? And despite the fact sure. that it's still your max, six hundred pounds is going to be more over time is going to have a profoundly different training effect than uh, it's just yeah. it was just interesting how that whole thing materialized. And then people were taking all these implications from the study. Uh, I, I I should try to find that and post it. I found that really fascinating because you read this the thesis that the abstract or or the the reference and you think it's something, but then you actually get into it and it's like whoa, whoever was training in this quarter squat group had a ridiculously hard time because of that what was demanded of them from a nervous system perspective. So I I, I um I definitely agree with that for that that like that it really just communication. It's just better better intra uh, disciplinary communication. You know, researchers and coaches. Yeah, and and and, so and maybe knowing better what you are researching because some people, if you take sprinting, some people are doing research on sprinting, and some people are doing research. This is the you see what I mean. This is the big mm -hmm. difference. You you can see it when you read the papers. Say, okay, they wanted to publish a paper. They did not want to know more about sprinting, definitely. Yeah. 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 Just better better communication is helpful across yeah. so many fields. So uh definitely research, I'm sure, being being one of them there. So well, I know we're about at the end of our hour and we did get through our questions and and man, just such good stuff to think about, especially with the um looking at kind of a way to simplify things on the field that are a precursor for injury and then looking at those horizontal markers. Uh, concretely uh, you really helped me out with that JB and I'm really happy I could chat yeah. with you again thank you so much for being on cool and uh, hopefully more exciting stuff in, in two or three years yes <laughs> right. for sure yeah we'll, we'll have to get back on those the foot <laughs> research too oh there will be definitely some results from the foot next time so sounds good alright well thank you JB I appreciate it Thanks for tuning in for another show. We really appreciate you being here with us and we'll see you next week with another great guest.